Before we read, I would remind you that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice, he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve to idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Corey. As Troy announced last week, we're taking a short break from the book of Romans. Today, as you may know, is the first Sunday of Advent, a time celebrating the first coming of Christ. So we're taking a short break from Romans, but we're not going too far. We're turning to the Romans of the Old Testament. We're turning to the book of Isaiah and to what are called the servant songs. Our passage this morning is the first of four servant songs. As we get started, take a look at the take a look at the first three words of this passage. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. That's my aim and prayer this morning. That we would together behold the servant of the Lord. That we would together behold the one who fulfilled these words, the servant, Jesus Christ, with the result that we would trust Jesus and live for him like never before. That's my aim. That's my prayer. That you would behold Jesus Christ with the result that you trust him and live for him like never before. As we get started, a, a word about the structure of this passage You can see in your Bibles or your worship guides that there are two main sections. The first section is verses 1 through 4. This section focuses on the mission of the servant. What will the servant do and how will he do it? What's his mission and how will he get the job done? That's the first section. We'll spend most of our time there. But the second section is verses 5 through 9. And this section focuses on the Lord's confirmation, his stamp of approval, if you will. Why will the Lord's servant succeed? 
Why can you be so certain that the servant's mission won't fail? That's the second section. So with that structure in mind, let's start with the immediate context. If you have your Bibles, we're going to flip back to chapter 41. Turn to verse 24. Isaiah 41, verse 24. Here the Lord speaks to idols. Idols are in the hot seat. Isaiah 41, verse 24 says this. Remember, it's the Lord speaking to idols. He says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. That's not exactly a compliment, is it? Now look with me a few verses later, verse 29. Here the Lord speaks not to idols, but to those who worship them. He speaks to idolaters. Isaiah 41, verse 29 says, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. The point of these verses that come right before our passage this morning is that it only makes sense to worship God. It only makes sense to worship the true God. What are idols? They are less than nothing. They are a false hope of salvation. This is what Jonah understood in the belly of the fish. In our evening services, we're going through the book of Jonah. And here's what Jonah prayed. He said, he prayed, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit grace. Grace that could be theirs. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Worship the one true and living God. But what do we do when we're left to ourselves? We don't worship God. We worship idols. We worship created things. We're like planets who refuse to orbit the sun of our solar system. Instead of orbiting our creator, we orbit created things. Let me ask this. What do you feel like you can't live without? What do you feel like you can't go without? What do you feel like you need in order to sing, it is well with my soul? Is it wealth, family, approval, pleasure, health, success, service? We could go on and on. There are too many false gods to count. Left to ourselves, we choose to worship idols, created things, false gods. And this disordered worship results in a profoundly disordered world. In this spiritual darkness, we need light. We need the light of salvation. We need someone to restore the world to to the way it was supposed to be. And the light of the world should have been Israel, right? After all, remember what God promised to Abraham. What did he promise? That in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. This, this was to be the original evangelism explosion. This was it. That Israel, the people of God, were to orbit the sun of the solar system. And as they did that, as they worshipped the true and living God, they would be a witness to the nations. 
that the nations would come in and see and behold God and begin to worship him. That was it. But what happened instead? What happened instead? Israel became just like the nations. Israel turned to idols and was exiled from the promised land. And at this point in the book of Isaiah, Israel, what was true of Israel? Israel was a bruised reed, a faintly burning wick, blind, imprisoned, sitting in darkness, just like the nations. What's the point of all of this? The point is really what Paul says in Romans 3. This is what we looked at last week. Paul says in Romans 3, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Apart from the grace of God in Christ, we are all under sin. We are all accountable to God. And we are all utterly unable to save ourselves. That's the context of Romans, where we're at. Romans chapter 3, that's the context here. All under sin. And the question is, how can we move from being under sin to under grace? Where can we find the light of salvation? Well, this chapter gives us the answer. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. Now, this servant language, behold my servant, this servant language is found throughout the Old Testament. Many, many people are referred to as being the servant of the Lord. Abraham, Moses, the prophets, David, Zerubbabel, Job, the people of Israel. Israel, as a people, as a group, collectively, was called the servant of the Lord. Here's, here's one example from the previous chapter. This is Isaiah 41, verses 8 through, tw- uh, 8 through 10. And you might be familiar with these verses. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. Listen to how Israel is, is referred to. But you... Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The Lord is speaking to the people of Israel. He's speaking to the people who rejected him and worshipped idols. Israel was a bruised reed, a faintly burning wick, blind, imprisoned. The chosen people of God were sitting in darkness, just like the Gentile nations. That's the desperate context. That's the context in which Isaiah begins to speak of the servant. This is the first of four servant songs that begin to focus our attention on an individual. Not on the group, but on an, on an individual. One who represents the group. The servant. 
true Israel, who would come to do what Israel failed to do. And what will this servant do? What will he do? In verses 1 through 4, his mission is loud and clear. You can't miss it. Verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice. Do you hear the theme? Justice, justice, justice. Justice is certainly a, a buzzword in our culture today. It really is. And the question for us this morning is, what does Isaiah mean in this context? Remember the immediate context. God calls out the idols. He calls out idolaters. So what, what's, the, what's the reference here for justice? What does Isaiah mean? Let's start by thinking about it this way. What's, what's the greatest injustice in our world today? What's the greatest injustice? The worst, most grievous wrong? What's the worst? What's the most grievous? There are too many wrongs to count, but the worst injustice, the biggest, most grievous one is this. That the Lord does not receive the glory due his name. That God doesn't get the worship due his name. He alone is God, but sinners don't worship him. That's it. That's the greatest injustice. We choose to worship false gods instead. Every other injustice springs from that one. Every other injustice in our world springs from that one. A disordered world springs from disordered worship. God does not receive the glory and praise and adoration due his name. So what does it mean? That the servant will bring forth justice? He will right that situation. It means, first of all, that he will reveal the shining truth to the nations in darkness. He will make known to both Jews and Gentiles that the Lord alone is God. The servant will see to it that sinners are reconciled to God. That those who are in spiritual darkness will be brought into marvelous light. That those in spiritual bondage under sin are set free. That idolaters turn from idols to worship the true and the living God. That's what he will do. He will see to it that the orbit, the, that the planets orbit the sun of the solar system again. He will see to it that the Lord receives the glory due his name. He will bring forth justice. But we could say more. What comes into view here is not only restored worship. It begins there, but it, it moves on from there. What comes into view is also how the servant will restore this world. He will right every wrong. He will fix everything that's broken. He will bring the kingdom of God in its fullness and completeness. He will bring forth justice. We see hints of this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Specifically chapter 12. We won't turn there, but Matthew recounts for us how Jesus healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. He healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. 
Take a guess. Do you think the Pharisees liked it? No, they didn't. And Matthew tells us that Jesus withdrew from there, and then we read this. So remember, the context is a healing. He heals a man's hand. Jesus withdraws. This is what Matthew tells us. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then Matthew quotes these very verses. He's saying this is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came not only to heal broken souls, as shown by these miracles, he came to heal broken bodies. He came to heal all that has been broken by the fall. All that has been broken. Souls, bodies, societies. Jesus is coming back to bring the just kingdom of God in its fullness. So think about what that will mean. It will mean that there will be no more mass shootings, no more funerals, no more court cases, no more doctor's appointments, no more apologies, no more natural disasters. There will no longer be a need for all of the insurances, health and home and auto and life. We won't need it. The day is coming. Think about this. Think about this. The day is coming when it will be true for all of God's people that everything we think, say, and do will please God. And where will it start? Here, in your hearts. That's what Jesus is, that's what he's doing. That's what he will do. He's peeling back the fall. The servant will usher in the new heavens and new earth. And Christian, this will be your home forever. This is what Christ is doing. What's the servant's mission? It's justice in the most perfect and comprehensive and worldwide form imaginable. That is good news. That is good news. It's a reordered, restored solar system with Jesus, the God-man at the center. That's what he's coming to do. And this passage not only focuses on what Jesus will do, it also focuses on how he will do it. And both what he does and how he does it are such good news for us today. Let me show you why. Look with me again at verse 1. Again, the question is, how will the servant go about this mission of bringing forth justice? How will he do it? How will he get the job done? Verse 1 tells us, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Upheld or gripped, chosen by the Lord, delighted in by the Lord, endowed with the spirit of the Lord. The servant will get the job done from strength. And that makes the next two verses all the more surprising. What? From our limited human perspective, this is the most unkingly king that we could think of. From our limited human perspective, we would not expect a king, a messiah, a savior like this one. Listen to these verses, starting in verse 2. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. 
he will faithfully bring forth justice. So what Isaiah is saying here is this. He's saying that this servant won't bully, he won't dominate, he won't shout others down, he won't crush people, he will gently care for them. He will be so quiet, so unobtrusive that you might miss him. True to his title, the servant will go about his mission like a servant. Like a servant. This is, this is not the kind of king or messiah or servant that we would expect. It's not. In these verses, it's almost like, it's almost like language fails the prophet Isaiah. He uses the word not seven times to describe what this servant is like. He will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice. He will not make it heard in the street. He will not. He will not. He will not. And he will not. It makes me think about the attributes of God. God is infinite, incomprehensible, invisible, independent, unchangeable. In other words, he's not finite. He's not comprehensible. He's not visible, etc., These are all ways of simply saying that God is not like us. He's not like us. And in the same way here, marvel at what this servant is not like. He is not like us. And that's good news for sinners. This gentle and lowly servant would eventually show the greatest love imaginable. Here here we see just hints of a theme that will develop through the servant songs. How can idolaters like us be saved from God's righteous judgment? How can we be saved? This is the question we've been asking through our study of the book of Romans. How can we be saved? We can be saved by a servant. This servant who would save his people by dying for us. He would be wounded he would be crushed for our transgressions. It is only by his stripes that we are healed. The Gospel of Luke recounts this at the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke writes this, And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, his chosen one. Yes, Jesus was the chosen one in whom the Lord delighted. But crucified in weakness, Jesus rose in strength. And the king rose to accomplish our salvation. He couldn't fail in his mission. It's just as Isaiah promised or prophesied. He will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands, they wait for his law. People in darkness wait for his law. Behold the servant of the Lord. Behold Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of these words. Have you responded to Jesus as you ought? That's the first question that we should ask as we study this passage. Have you responded to him? He is the one and only long-awaited savior of sinners for people like us, like you. Apart from Christ, you are not seeing You are blind. You are not in the light. You are in darkness, enslaved to sin. And refuse the light of the world now? 
Refuse him now, and you will spend eternity in the darkness of hell, under God's wrath. If you refuse Christ, that will be your eternity. So come to this Savior. Come to Christ. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He will not crush sinners who come to him. He came to open blind eyes, to set you free from sin. Behold the servant of the Lord and entrust your life entirely to him. For those of us who love Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ, there are so many implications of this passage, so many applications. We could say so much. I'll say a few things, and I'll start here. If you are in Christ, if you are united to him, if you belong to him, then consider who you are. Consider who you are. In Christ, you are a servant. You are a servant. You are one who puts others first. You are one who gives your life for others. To be a Christian is to be a servant like your king. This is who you are. As a servant, the Lord upholds you. He has chosen you. He delights in you. And after ascending into heaven, who did Jesus send to indwell his people? The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in you. In Christ, you are, we are servants of the Lord. I thought about volunteering for something recently. This was not at proclamation. It was elsewhere. I thought about volunteering for something, and I was really struggling with whether or not to do it. And the more I went back and forth, the more I wondered, why do I not want to do this? I thought, well, it's a pretty mundane and boring task. Who wants to do it? Then I thought, well, oh, I think, I think it's too invisible. It's... It's something that people wouldn't see me doing. That was convicting. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized, I think, I think I don't want to do this because it feels like it's beneath me. Like, like I shouldn't be doing something like this. Can you relate? That is not the mind of Christ. That's not the thinking of the kingdom. There is nothing beneath me as a servant of Christ. There's nothing beneath you. You are a servant. It's not something we choose to do. Do I want to be a servant or not today? You are a servant. Contrast, contrast my proud heart in that moment with the humility of someone else. I was at a presbytery meeting recently, a few weeks ago, and a longtime missionary retired. He had served for many, many, many years with an Arab ministry, a ministry to the Arab world, and... This man is so learned. He, he preaches in English, in French, in Arabic. He has personally discipled almost a dozen Arab men who are now faithfully proclaiming Christ to the Arab world. One is a leading Christian apologist. This, this is what this missionary had done. And it was amazing to think about. And someone asked him, so what are you doing now? Now that you're retired, what are you doing? And among other things, he said, I'm serving with Bible to school. 
I'm teaching second graders the word of God. The contrast, the contrast, this man who is so learned, who, who has done so much, now is faithfully following Jesus, proclaiming him to second graders. That is, that's a servant. That's, that's a godly man. He's, he's being a light to the world, pointing second graders to the light of the world, to Jesus Christ. This is who we are. We're servants. So if that's true of you, may you joyfully serve after the example of your Savior. May this be true more and more in your life. May you become more and more who you are. You are upheld, chosen, delighted in by the Lord. May you make it your daily aim today, this week, to please him. That's your goal this Christmas season. Your aim is to please, to please Jesus Christ. That's your goal. You can get shopping done, yes, but that's your goal. It's to, it's to please Jesus, to please your heavenly father. You, a bruised reed and flickering wick, are treated so gently, so gently by Jesus. May you treat the hurting, needy people around you with that same gentle care. May these verses describe you. You were in spiritual darkness, but now you follow the light of the world. May you humbly and faithfully seek every opportunity you can to share the light of the world with others. And you have a certain hope. You have the certain hope of the kingdom, of the coming of the kingdom in its fullness, in its completeness. So may you persevere as you seek to right as many wrongs as you possibly can. May you persevere in that. And may you hope, may this hope comfort you. May it comfort you as you grieve the many, 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 many injustices of our world today. The kingdom is coming. May that hope comfort you. May it sustain you. May it encourage you as you grieve today, as you grieve tomorrow. Much, much more can be said, but do remember this. Do remember this. You are not the Messiah. You're not the Messiah. We probably tend to have more of a messianic complex than we realize. We tend to think that we're more responsible and more important and more depends on us than it really does. Or is that just me? (laughs) I think it's all of us. We are not the Messiah. The certainty of this mission does not rest on you. It doesn't rest on me. As we learn in these next verses, this mission depends on no one less than God himself. That's who it depends on. Why can we be so certain that what we've been talking about today isn't some dream but will be a reality? That the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness, in its complete justice? How can we be certain? Well, listen to these next verses. Verses 5 through 9. Starting in verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, the servant, in righteousness. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. In these verses, it's almost like the Lord is saying, if my servant doesn't succeed, then I'm not God. If he doesn't do this, then I'm not God. But I am God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And you can be certain that what I have promised will be fulfilled in time. This mission will not fail. God is God. The servant is God in the flesh. This is our foundation. This is our bedrock foundation. This is what gets us up in the mornings. This is what enables us to sleep peacefully at night. This is what enables you to faithfully persevere as a Christian in your work, in your witness, in your parenting, in your grieving, in your everyday Christian life as you wait for the second advent of Christ. God has staked his glory on the fulfillment of his servant's mission. The just and reordered world that you long for is certain. Your resurrection, body and soul, is certain. Christian, your future is certain. Jesus, the servant, will not fail. Amen.